you join me in praying, and uh, before we do that, actually, uh, you can flip open to John chapter 6, verse 25. As you're flipping there, I'll pray. Father God, I pray for you to aliven us to the deeper reality that is you in this world and this universe. And I pray that would awaken us from the hyper-reality in which we find ourselves often intoxicated by, yet continually driven to discontent by. And Lord, I pray that in that we would find in this moment and, Lord, through our lives, that you ultimately are the bread of life. And that in you being the bread of life, we find deep, true, existential satisfaction. Not in all the materials, but in you, the creator of the material. And Lord, that's easy to say. It's easier to, uh, easy to assent to mentally. But Lord, it's really hard to live. And so Lord, I pray that you would do beyond just the work of getting our minds in line, but do the work with actually aligning our wills through our hearts being fastened to you. Lord, whether that looks like emotional excitement or whether that just looks like a stubborn, wholehearted commitment to knowing that you alone have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would do that work, and I pray that you would do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 6, verse 25. And when they found him, being Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread uh, from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that I, he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this, will be, uh, and this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And he said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So we started this series last week going through the I am statements of John because we want to take the beginning of the year to refocus our hearts, our minds, our affections on the person of Jesus and explicitly through the words of who he said he was. And I said last week that there's this sense where you can, if you've been around church, and uh, a lot of you have, a lot of you've grown up in church, and a lot of you've been around the things where you're like, okay, yeah, Jesus, like, I know the things that are true about Jesus. But we said like last week, there's a way in which I want to, yes, know about Jesus, but more than knowing about Jesus, I want to continually have an opportunity to be shaped by who he is. Because it doesn't matter ultimately what you know in your mind, it matters what's in your central nervous system. Last week I used the illustration of my family home growing up had a bump as you entered the garage. And so every time you drove over it, it bumped you up or it bumped you down. It was ever so slight, but it was there. And then when I go away to college, my parents fix that bump, they level it out. But yet every single time I go back there, I can look at the fact that it's even ground. I can sit in the car and tell myself, there's no bump, there's no bump, but the second the car crosses the threshold, the nanoseconds there, my whole body tenses. Why? Because it doesn't matter what's in my mind. My central nervous system knows that it's there, even if it's not. And just like that, we want to be a people that it doesn't matter what you know in your mind about Jesus. I mean, yes, it does. But yet there's so many people, there's so many times where you've known what's true in your mind, but yet Jesus hasn't filtered down to your central nervous system. Because in times of stress and times of freaking out, all of a sudden everything goes flying up in the air and it's just losing that sense of faith. And why is that? Because it's yet to work deeply into us. And Jesus says, "That's, that's the work of a lifetime. That's the work that I'm going to complete in you. I began it and I will complete it. And this is part of the way that we complete it. It's by coming together regularly to deal with what is already in our central nervous system. And that's actually what I want to talk about right now because John 6 deals with another form of something that is in your central nervous system, everyone in our culture, and it is the concept of hyperreality. Hyperreality is a psychological term. And Krishan Kumar says, Our world has become so saturated with images and symbols 
that a new electronic reality has been created, whose effect is to obliterate any sense of an objective reality lying behind the images and the symbols. In this simulated world, images become objects rather than reflecting them. Reality becomes hyper-reality. In hyper-reality, it is no longer possible to distinguish from the imaginary from the real, the true from the false. Here's an example or an illustration of what this looks like. You see a magazine cover of a beautiful woman. And of course, you've probably now seen enough YouTube videos or enough evidence to know, yes, they took a picture of an actual woman. And then they took that picture and they airbrushed it. They added curves, they added volume, they added lashes. Then they take that same picture, they augment it, they shift it, they take it in just the right lighting, they take it in just the right moment. And so by the time you actually get to the picture that's put on a magazine, it doesn't actually reflect what that person really looked like in that day or what you would see if you had been there. However, we all live under the tyranny of that is what you should look like or that is what you should pursue. That's hyper-reality. Here's another form. Sitcoms. You move to a city and you believe that you should be surrounded by your friends. They should live across the hall. You should live in a fantastic apartment, yet you don't work. All of life is a joyful experience, all friends and sexuality and all things good, or you are the perfect family. Take the Cosby Show, for instance. I know some of you are like, Cosby Show? I've never watched the Cosby Show. Well, let me, let me inform you. He was a doctor and she was a lawyer and they were always home. Have you noticed this? Like... In what world are those people just like sitting there processing every emotion with their children after school, before school, at the dinner table? It's ultimately a picture of hyper-reality. Of course, we know this just through the concept of Hollywood romance. We all know the concept of happily ever after, where in a Disney princess world, a prince comes and you live happily ever after. There's no talk of suffering. There's no talk of sin and forgiveness. There's no talk of health concerns. There's no talk of wayward children, of defiant children, of barrenness, of miscarriages. Where we all know that that is actually what takes place, not in just some people's life, everyone's life. I was talking with a friend this weekend, and I was talking about this concept with him about hyperreality. I said, because I've been raised looking at TV, I've come to believe the idea that suffering should not be normative. To which he immediately said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. He said, the one thing that I've always known is that suffering is normative. I believe it is the theologian and scholar from The Princess Bride who said, life is pain, your highness. Anyone who tells you any differently is selling you something. But yet, we live with a sense of a hyper-real world. And you don't even have to go to celebrities. You can simply go to social media profiles. 
and we talk about this all the time, I beat up on this all the time, about the idea that you are looking, and yes, you know, you're looking at someone's edited life that they've chosen how to put together and they've chosen how to display. But yet, it doesn't matter how much you know that, continually studies show just by immersing yourself in it, it is going to lead you to a deeper sense of discontentment and depression because there's just a sense of like, well, but maybe one of these is true. And even if it is edited, it's better than if I edited my life what I could put out there. Hyperreality is a life where the exaggerated gets portrayed as normative. This is what life is supposed to be like. This is what you're supposed to be experiencing. This is what you're supposed to enjoy, how you're supposed to consume, the effort relationships you're supposed to have. Philip Yancey, in, the, in his book, Rumors of Another World, What on Earth Are We Missing?, talks about hyperreality in this. He says, a society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. That's hyperreality. Sophisticated moderns have not renounced transcendence, but rather replaced it with weak substitutes. Listen to this. This is crazy. Annie Dillard, in a little awkward, lean in. All right. Annie Dillard tells of experiments in which entomologists entice male butterflies with painted cardboard replicas, larger and more enticing than females of their own species. Excited, the male butterfly mounts the piece of cardboard. Again and again, he mounts it. Nearly the real, or nearby, the real living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain. We live in a cardboard world. But you've been told, and you'll continually be told, and even though you can intellectually know in your mind that it's a cardboard world, in your central nervous system, there is a sense of discontent. Because ultimately, that's what hyperreality drives. It drives this continual sense of there's more just discontent. And there you find yourself buying into it, whether it be marriage, whether you have marriage or don't have marriage, and that is going to fix problems, or friendships. I can't think of how many times I look at the friendships, relationships that you have, the the. Corey's and Sean's, the Zach and Screech. I mean, I don't know which, how far back you've got to go or where you need or how more recent you need to go. Uh, Liz McGuire and whoever those two other kids are. Um, yeah, regardless, either way. Uh, so you, you look at these friendships, these life-giving things, you're just like these people that have been with each other, that have each other's backs, and I'm like, I don't have that. I've had that with some people that moved away or I just didn't ever cultivate it at all because I continually forget to continue to invest in relationships. Just get really busy. Or singleness. Singleness itself can have this hyper-reality, right? Of this is how you should be living if you are single. You shouldn't be, I mean, we probably shouldn't be in Indianapolis. It's, you know, that alone already. You guys are all losing. I'm sorry if you're here. And you definitely, I mean, even if you are in another city, if you are in New York, you shouldn't be there on the weekend. You should be in Portugal. And so we continually have this sense of this is what singleness is. This is what sex is. This is what family is. This is what career should be, what fame should be, what beauty should be, what financial security or extravagance should be. 
And again, it leads us to a continual discontentedness. Marketers know this. This is what all modern marketing is based off of. We know there is a discontent in the human heart, and so we are going to exploit that to push in the idea that what you need to do to fill that is to consume more goods, services, and experiences. And so again, it's just going to continually put in the sense of, here's what you need to do. You see beauty, you need to become more beautiful. Here's the clothing, here's the products, here's the workout programs, here's what you need to get there. You see a desire for a new job. You need to go on another trip. You need to have a sexual experience. Interestingly enough, Mark Sayers in his book, The Trouble with Paris, says this. Hyper-reality is a I will be happy when existence. The, follow, the space following the when will be different from everyone who will constantly change. But the principle of postponing happiness is the same for everyone who operates in the hyper-real world. So no matter how affluent or comfortable our lives become, we will always be looking over our shoulder at something better. In many ways, this I will be happy when culture becomes the ultimate addiction culture. As people enter the addictive downward spiral, always needing a bigger hit to satisfy the growing cravings and becoming less free in the process. Again, a lot of us can be like, yeah, I, I didn't need to have this concept of hyperreality to know all of this is true, but it lives in your bones. And maybe on a good day you can push it away, but you have, a, again, a stressful season, something comes up unexpected, and this just comes out of us. Jesus knew this. It's why... This story is coming right after the time, a very famous story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus takes just a few loaves and fish and he feeds 5,000 people. And the next day, people are like looking for him because they realize if you're an oppressed people in the Roman system, a man who can provide food like that for 5,000 people could be very beneficial. And so they come looking for him. In 26, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, you're not following me because you're convinced of who I am. You're not following because you realize what this idea of me providing this bread means for you. You're following because you have a consumeristic itch and I filled your stomachs and you're wondering if I can do it again. The old thing says in 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. People are coming to him and they want more bread because they're concerned on how do we survive. And Jesus says, I see you're coming because of the bread, but I want to reframe your idea to not be about what you, how you, what you do to survive, but how you actually thrive in this world. He says, don't go for the food that perishes. Because again, that's the ultimate problem of hyperreality. It's food that perishes. There's two words for life in Greek that both get translated life in English, bios and zoe. Bios is the stuff of life. It's where we get biology. It's just all of the material that there is. But zoe is the concept of life and life to the full. Jesus says, I have come so that you might have zoe. We have to use the words like really or to use italics. He's living, but he isn't really 
living. Really living is Zoe. Problem is, bios doesn't start out feeling unsatisfying. C.S. Lewis calls it the sweet poison of the false infinite. It's sweet. It tastes good. It's like when you're really thirsty and you drink pop and you, like, you know it's not hydrating you on any level, but yet your mind believes it's actually working, but yet it is going to leave you more thirsty and more in the problem than you started with. And so this is constantly looking for the next thing, constantly looking for that time where you get back to vacation. And I don't know about you, every single time I'm beginning vacation, it's just like all of the anticipation and joy and wonderful, but it's just like sitting there, there's that part in the back of my mind of like, I know I'm going to be driving home at some point and had post-vacation blues are going to hit. And wave upon wave, all of a sudden it's over and all that is left now is the money I've spent and a continual feeling of trying to preserve a feeling of when I was there. Or sex or sexual experience. If you're not married and you pursue it, it typically comes with after that a wave of guilt and shame. And it's funny, you continually like sit there pursuing after the pornographic experience, the sexual experience, and it's like you know that wave is coming, but when it's in the blood, when shark eyes go down, you can't convince yourself of that truth. But it does come. If you are married, then sex becomes, yes, a wonderful thing that doesn't solve all your problems. In stressful and painful and hard and anxious and tough seasons, it doesn't solve everything. Or career success. I uh, am continually haunted by an article written on Michael Jordan's 50th birthday called Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building, in which it talks about Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time. And it says of him, a common word used to describe Jordan is rage. Jordan might have stopped playing basketball, but the rage is still there. The fire remains, which is why he searches for release on the golf course or the blackjack table. It's why he spends so much time and energy on the Charlotte Bobcats and why he dreams of returning to play. He needs to know what people think of him. It's like an itchy vein. Most people live anonymous lives, and when they grow old and die, and any record, a record of their existence is blown away. They're forgotten, some more slowly than others. But eventually, it happens to virtually everyone. Yet for the few people in each generation who reach the very pinnacle of fame and achievement, a mirage, a mirage flickers, immortality. They come to believe in it. Even after Jordan is gone, he knows people remember him. Here lies the greatest basketball player of all time. That is his epitaph. When he walked off the court the last time, he must have believed that nothing could ever diminish what he'd done. That knowledge would be his shield against aging. There's a fable about returning Roman generals who rode in victory parades through the streets of the capital. A slave stood behind them, whispering in their ear, all glory is fleeting. Nobody does that for professional athletes. Jordan couldn't have known that the closest he'd get to immortality was during that final walk off the court. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, directly tied to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? 
for the past 10 years, since retiring for the third time, he's been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. This is the person by, I mean, if you lived in the 90s, I wanted to change my name to Michael Jordan for a good six years of my life just because this is the man who had everything. He still, in many ways, has everything, and it's just chipping away and eroding because it's hyper-reality. It was never real. Mark Twain famously said, a man typically dies at 27, we just don't bury him until 72. We feel the threat of death of our hearts, of our joy. It's because ultimately we know we can't live off of hyper-reality. We want meaning, and that's the one thing that hyper-reality has no ability to give. Hyper-reality doesn't deal with anything that actually has substance and meaning. It doesn't deal with your fears. It distracts you from them, but it can't actually deal with them. It doesn't deal with guilt or shame or regret. It can't do anything. Again, often it causes it and tells you the only way to get rid of it is to experience more of it, which then deepens the guilt, the shame, the regret, the fear. It doesn't deal with anger or bitterness. It doesn't deal with suffering. It doesn't deal with injustice. It doesn't deal with aging, and it doesn't deal with death. Conversely to bios, you have zoe, which promised by hyperreality, it has no ability to deliver on. Where then Jesus comes and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me Whoever drinks me won't be hungry and won't be thirsty. It's interesting because most of the beginning of my life, I lived thinking that following Jesus meant shutting down desires. It meant taking those things I really wanted and turning the volume down on them and trying to mute those so I could pursue after Jesus. Then I had my entire life rocked by the parable of the man who finds the treasure in the field. Talks about a guy, Jesus says, hey, you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? It's like a guy who just found, walking through a field, somebody else's field, by the way, he's just a shady guy, and he's walking through somebody's field, he finds a treasure in that guy's field. And instead of like reporting it to the guy, he reburies it and then goes and sells everything he has so he can buy that field so he can get that treasure. He's like, that's what following me is like. It's not you turning down the volume on your desire. It's you turning up the volume on that which you actually desire, which is life and life to the full. And so you can sell everything that hyper-reality has to offer in order to buy the field of which Zoe actually resides. Ronald Rawlheiser is a Catholic writer, brilliant man, he writes this. He says, there is within us a fundamental dis-ease, 
an unquenchable fire that renders us inescapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones, in the deep recesses of our soul, at the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, and religion, lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. Spirituality, following Jesus, ultimately is about what we do with that desire. What we do with our longings, both in terms of handling our pain, the pain and the hope they bring us, that is our spirituality. St. Augustine says, you've made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Spirituality is about what we do with that unrest. Jesus is ultimately talking about, he says, hey, what do you want to do? You know what you need to find, Zoe? Is you need to find deep, communal, communing, transcendent life with me. Because here's what we know about the hierarchy of needs. We've studied enough human psychology to know this. If you see the hierarchy of needs, it kind of looks like the pyramid or maybe like the iceberg, something like that. The tip of the iceberg is all that hyperreality promises it will give you. It is all, I mean, it's all your basic needs, your needs, your wants, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your family, all that stuff basically lives up in that top pyramid of just basic needs. Next level, meaning. Deeper than all of those needs, again, we have a desire for meaning in our lives. Next level under that, interestingly enough, community. Relationships is even more fundamental than meaning in your life. And then underneath that last level, the base of all of your human needs is transcendence. Or what Jesus calls life and life to the full. An experience of communion with a transcendent, eternal being who says all of this not only has meaning, but I am working all things out so that you might experience me, the depths of meaning, that there's something under this reality, under the cardboard that actually has substance. And I am it. And you are meant to find your life in me. The only problem is you have to stop eating the sweet poison long enough to realize that it's actually killing you rather than bringing you the life that it never actually delivers on. Because why ultimately do you want the success? Why do you want the relationships? Why do you want the security? Ultimately, I'd say this. There's three core longings in the human heart. Now, I, I don't know. I, I, I potentially argue with this, but this is interesting. I found this and I like this from a... Uh, uh, I was a pastor. I can't remember his name right now. But either way, uh, he's, he argued for three core longings: to be known, to be valued, to be included. But the problem is, is that we often find our entire lives living, feeling obscure, worthless, and excluded. You feel obscure. If Michael Jordan's going to be forgotten, how fast are you going to be? Like, holy cow! There are billions of people out there right now. No matter how high you climb to, there's probably over a billion people that are going to get higher than you. And you can look up to and say, there's a little bit more that I need to go. You're one of billions. Or worthless. Whether it's through a relationship. I give all of myself in this relationship sexually because they are going to give me worth and value in, in return. The only problem is, is then when they end up just leaving anyway, it's like, well, what, what actually happened here? Because you were looking for things from them that they maybe, maybe actually never said they were going to give you. Or 
you've got to nail it this quarter. It doesn't matter that you've nailed it the past 10 quarters in a row. If you miss this one, it's like the other ones never existed. Your value is completely connected to that which you can produce. So you better get working hard on Monday. You better start on Sunday night. In fact, you probably shouldn't stop. We have a sense that we're obscure, that we're worthless, and that we're excluded. There's an inner circle that you cannot get into. One of the most foundational shaping experiences of my life was the lunchroom in middle school. The sadistic thing that they did in my middle school was that they had circle tables, literally circles, that you had to get into. And they put six chairs around and said only six people can sit at each table. Of course, it was to try to not get like all these people trying to hover into what they saw as the most popular, most life-giving table. But here's what it did in return. It created a very clear pecking order. There was the first table, the top six. There was the next table, the next six. And then there was like two or three other tables arguing that they were third. And then you eventually get down to the one that doesn't even fill six spots at the table. I remember in sixth grade, I saw that table. I'm like, I need to sit at that table. I befriended some of them. And at, when the bell would ring, I would sprint down and get the most undesirable food item because it was the shortest line so I could get to the table. And the first couple days, it worked out fine. One of like the fifth or sixth guys in the pecking order got there last. And so it was just like, okay, they moved there. They moved to the other table, bummer for them. But then one day, I ousted the alpha. And he was fine, actually. He had enough self-confidence. He was like, okay, I'll just go sit somewhere else. And all the other guys were like, no, 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 no. Because if you go, then all of a sudden, this table isn't like the table. You are what makes us this table. And so they all look at me and be like, Kent, you got to move. That was... Again, one of the most shaping experiences of my entire life. I was talking with a friend recently, and he said, do you ever feel like you've been accepted in your entire life? And I went back and I recounted that story. And I said, I don't think that that's where that came from, but that feels like a microcosm of the acceptance-rejection story I feel in my life. Because ultimately, we want to feel known, valued, included, but yet we're haunted by feeling obscure, worthless, and excluded. And here's the biblical reality. Forget hyper-reality. Here is Bible reality. That you are known. Psalm 139 says the creator and the sustainer, the life-giving force of this world, made you. He knows you. He knit you together. It's meant to be intimate language. He formed you with his fingers. He knows the hairs on your head. He collects your tears in a bottle. Not only is he aware of every tear you've cried, every pain you've experienced, he's collected every one. He isn't just going to wipe them all away metaphorically. He has them all. And Jesus walks this world. He sees prostitutes and cripples and beggars and irregularly the people who are pushed to the outskirts of society. And he says, I see you and I want you. I want you to be in my family. We are ultimately not obscure in Jesus' eyes, and we're not, uh, we're not worthless. It says we're lavished by love. I don't know if you've ever been lavished by anything. Here's, I don't know what is with all the 90s references right now, but 90s Nickelodeon. 
Here's the picture of lavishness. Um, they would have pretty much like every show, they'd figure out how can the end of the show we just dump slime on somebody. And so they would just take somebody unexpectedly and just dump a kid with slime. And it's just like over their eyes and they can't see and like it's in their mouth. That's what being lavished by the love of God is meant to be portrayed as. It's like, holy cow, this person is like it, drowning in love of God. And it's the idea that, I mean, you're, some of you have like a level of insecurity. And I don't say some of you. All of you have a level of insecurity in which you struggle to believe those who actually love you actually love you. And it depends on how, how high that level is to how much you actually express it. To like say to them, like, I know you say you love me, I just struggle to believe that you actually could. But yet the idea of God lavishing you with love is the idea that no matter how much you're like, I don't believe you actually could love me, he's going to lavish it over and over and over and over and over until your insecurity succumbs. Because you're loved, therefore you have worth, and you're included. One pastor uh, teaching on this passage said this. He said, in him we have forgiveness. There's no condemnation for, whom, uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our guilt is removed. Our shame is removed. In him we have adoption so that we could become sons and daughters of God who are safe in the hands of God. In him we have peace because we know that God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can stand against us? If he did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him up for us, will he not graciously give us all things? We know he is for us, so there's peace because he's working all things together for our good. He says Jesus is wisdom to guide us so we don't have to live in confusion. He's wealth to provide for us. We don't have to sit there running around for clothes and for bread. He gives us things to birds. He cares a lot more about you. He's strength to help us persevere through suffering and trial. And he's our counsel of the Holy Spirit who's purchased for us by the cross. It is the Holy Spirit who leads us in the way so that we know how to handle life and relationships and work and we learn to order all of the things of hyper-reality and actually put them in a sense of reality and are okay living in the uh, the ordinary and the mundane because we know that there is a deeper reality that we're headed for. It's not here yet. But yet now, by tapping into it, we can actually taste glimmers of life and life to the full of Zoe. And so if that drops into us, again, quoting this pastor, he says, that not only that, he gives us the assurance that though we die, we will not perish. Though death slay us, he will raise us. Jesus is the bread of life that answers all the questions of hyperreality is afraid to ask. And we're not just in Christ sitting around waiting for heaven, but he gives us a people to belong to, a purpose to embrace. We have something bigger to live for than name brands, consumerism, and amusement. He frees us to, from living for the world's goods and unleashes us to live for the world's good. And so, how do you get it? Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from when the Christ appears. No one will know where, oh, sorry, that's chapter 7. Let me go back. Verse 27 of chapter 6. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. 
Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's pairing in this phrase two realities. He says, hey, you can work for the food that perishes. And you will. You will give everything for the food that perishes. It will demand everything from you. It demanded everything from Jordan. It will demand everything from you for your career, for a relationship. It will demand everything. And if you fail it, it will abandon you. You can go after beauty, after body image every single day. You fail once, it abandons you. But Jesus says, you can work and pour yourself out for that, or you can work for the bread of life that I give to you. How do we do that work? By you believe in me. And people always want to take that and be like, is it just that easy? You just believe in Jesus? Believing in Jesus is not easy in a world where hyper-reality lives in your central nervous system and bones. It's not just this sense of, okay, yes, I, it's, I regularly am having to deal with the fact that I'm uprooting the fact that hyper-reality is not going to satisfy. And again, it doesn't matter how many times I do that. Give me one period of stress, and where do I run? And he says, ultimately, here's the work. The work is continually rooting that out and coming back to believe that you're not going to find life in anywhere but me. Well, how do we do that? We do that by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is a really um, seeker-sensitive message that Jesus wanted to give to you today. It's this idea, he says, of like, the idea of like eating his flesh is like this munching and crunching. It's like this continual feasting on who he is, on what he is, on being near to him, of being in his presence, of pursuing after him. Because ultimately, we've talked about it a few weeks ago. What you think about is what you care about. And what you care about, you naturally chase. What you fill your life with is the things you're going to find you care about. And the things you care about, you don't have to like, say, I need more self-discipline to chase after that which I care about. That which you care about, you just naturally rearrange your life. You will do painful and horrific things to get that which you care about. So he says, how do you continually find the sense of working out hyper-reality from your soul and pushing in this reality? You're doing not only what we're doing in the sermon series, but you do this not just on Sundays, but on a daily basis. You're pursuing, how do I push in the reality of a biblical reality into my mind? meditating on scripture through having relationships and community where this is something that we can just talk and discuss and pursue and push each other onto, or having a regular time where I sabbath to remind myself my value doesn't come from what I produce having a time where I'm regularly in prayer, whether it be silent prayer, reflecting on the love of God that is for me, regardless that I'm not doing anything right now, not producing anything right now, that I am ultimately loved by God, or by active verbal prayer of saying, like Augustine would often pray, God, take my scattered desires and rest them in you. And it doesn't happen overnight. 
It's not easy, but this is why we've been pressing into spiritual formation so hard as we have, is because ultimately we realize that we are a people that need to find ways to regularly be munching and crunching and feasting on the body and the blood of Jesus. Which is why every week we end the sermon with communion. A time to come forward and literally munch and crunch on bread and drink from a cup where he says, hey, you want a non-hyper-reality symbol, a symbol that actually means more than it actually is? He says this bread and this cup represents a deeper reality in the world that I have purchased for you forgiveness and familyhood in the family of God. Sonship, daughtership. Not by you working your way up with religion, but by me coming down to you and being broken for you. You break yourself to work for that which hyperreality promises. I break myself to give you that which actual biblical reality produces. And so I've broken myself on a cross to give you the assurance that as you hold on to me and let go of the other things, And yes, you can still enjoy these things of this world, but that's it. You enjoy them. You don't rest your weight of soul upon them and find it tragically collapsing underneath you. As you do that, as you regularly rest on my reality, then you will be free. You'll no longer hunger. You'll no longer thirst. You will find rest and joy for your soul. I am the bread of life. If you want to argue and go live your life another way, go for it. It's exhausting. And it never satisfies. So I invite you, if you're a Christian, if you believe these things, if you're holding on to these things, to come forward, to take the bread, tear it off, and dip it in the cup. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. You don't feel like you have to jump into this. This is something, and that's what it means for us. And so we just like you to consider and pursue and to press into these things. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. Let me pray for us now. Father God.